Chapter Nineteen of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Nineteen, Blatchmardon Castle. The visitor who came to Blatchmardon for the first time was apt to be reminded of the castle of the Sleeping Beauty in the wood. There was an air of neglect about everything except the stable which was suggestive of a century's slumber. There was the stillness of a house in which every one was steeped in an after-dinner nap. There were more cobwebs than are generally permitted in the waking world. More dust lay in the disused reception rooms than was consistent with the dignity of a waking earl's household. The wide-spreading park that screened the castle from the outside world had grown and thickened since the present Lord Blatchmardon had come into his own. He loved the old beeches that he had climbed and bird-nested in as a boy. He loved the young oaks that he had seen planted. And sorely as he had sometimes needed the money those trees might have brought him, Lord Blatchmardon had been strictly conservative of the timber on his estate. He was indeed in all things a moderate man, living moderately, taking his pleasure in few and simple things, fond of his horse and dog and gun, loving to potter about the sixty or seventy acres which he reserved for his own cultivation, and fancying himself a shining light in modern agriculture. He was a harmless, well-meaning man, and had never been known to deal hardly with his children, seldom even to speak harshly to them. He had let them grow up very much as they liked, exacting little from them and giving the least he could. He had just contrived to find the money for Bevel's education at Rugby and Christchurch, but that young nobleman had not been able to indulge in any of those expensive follies, which are, as it were, the rosebuds that university youth gathers while it may, no matter how many thorns it may find sticking in its fingers after the rosebuds are faded. Bevel and his sister were fond of their father in their own characteristic way talking of him lightly as the pater, the sheikh, the ancient mariner, or by any other title which a frivolous fancy suggested to them. But of that deep and serious love which goes hand in hand with reverence, they had no idea. Such love as Dulcie felt for her father was not within the compass of these lighter natures. They were faithful to the old earl after their fashion, and would have resented any disrespect offered to him by an outsider, and this familiar, easy-going affection, being Lord Blatchmardin's highest idea of filial piety, he was thoroughly satisfied with the tribute offered to him. He loved and praised his children, and had no eye for their faults and shortcomings. Bevel was the dearest boy in the world, and the best shot in the shire. Fan sat her horse to perfection, and had the lightest hands that ever steered a fretful hunter across country that either boy or girl needed higher accomplishments or a wider culture, had never entered into Lord Blatchmardin's head. The sleepy old castle was a curious mixture of ancient splendour, neglect, forlornness, and modern comfort. There were spacious suites of rooms that had not been used for fifty years, and which the housemaids, reluctant and yawning at their profitless work, visited at long intervals, with their brooms and brushes, scaring spiders that had grown bloated in undisturbed plenty, and setting vagabond mice scrambling and scuffling in their warren behind the panelling. 
grand old rooms in which stately banquets and receptions had been held in days gone by and where a few years ago beville and his sister had played hide-and-seek in the dusky winter afternoons seldom did any one save the housekeeper and housemaids or now and then an inquisitive tourist who forced his way into the house enter those rooms now lord blatchmardine and his son and daughter lived in a nest of quaint low-ceiled parlours opening into an old dutch garden and had their bedchambers and private dens in the corresponding rooms on the floor above leaving all the stately part of the house to the rats and mice and cobwebs and housemaids except the big central hall which was used as a billiard-room and general lounge by lady frances and the two gentlemen and served also as a smoking-room for beville and the few friends whom he occasionally entertained at blatchmardine shabby and faded though the house was it was not without interest and picturesqueness the fine stone hall with its huge fireplace the wide staircase leading to the echoing gallery above the vaulted roof whence hung ragged silken banners that told of days when grange was a name known in the lists of chivalry the grim old portraits the antique furniture all had a charm that belongs to things that have a history the contrast between the spacious splendour of the disused rooms and the cosy comfort and snugness of the garden parlours had a piquant effect and people who came to blatchmardine for the first time after being chilled and awed by deserted banquet halls and mouldy withdrawing rooms were delighted with the sunny sitting-rooms facing south papered with birds and butterflies bright with chintz hangings and odds and ends of old china and deliciously rococo cabinets and tea-tables lady frances and her governess had arranged the rooms between them nine years ago and it had been miss moulton's favourite task ever since to keep them in exquisite order and this office of hers was by no means a sinecure as frances was the most harem scarum and untidy of girls and left litter and confusion behind her wherever she went i wonder what would become of you all if i were not here asked miss moulton as she bustled about the little drawing-room shutting up work-boxes tidying bookstands and arranging writing-tables i really think you and lord beville are the most literary young people in the world oh literary instead of literary cried frances it's only a difference of a letter or two what would become of us curly if you were to go away why in the first place we should expire of grief in less than a week and in the second blatchmardine would be a pigsty before the end of a fortnight i'm like hamlet don't you know dear i wasn't born to set things right you are not quoting correctly frances oh of course not i never do i always adapt my quotations to suit my text is not that what they do in the newspapers sarah moulton shrugged her plump shoulders and gave a little laugh she was much too fond of frances to be severe as long as the lessons had lasted she had done her uttermost to be strict with her pupil she had insisted on having the correct date of julius caesar's assassination the right number of petals for each order of plants the exact constituents of conglomerate the precise place of old red sandstone in the geological scale but now it was all over on her eighteenth birthday lady frances had shut up her books and vowed that she would learn no more she was finished 
she was to make her curtsy at st james's under the wing of lady luffington her maternal aunt at the first drawing-room i am an emancipated young woman she exclaimed and i shall never learn any more i should be puzzled to know how much you have learned said miss moulton oh take it the other way curly sweet and be content with knowing how little i never did take kindly to the pierian spring did i dear perhaps i didn't drink deep enough to enjoy it and now i suppose i had better look out for a new situation said miss moulton sarah moulton alias curly alias sally alias the dearest woman in the world how can you ask such a heartless question said frances with her arms around the good soul's neck oh yes i know i'm rumpling your collar but i can't help it how can you talk of leaving us don't you know you're a kind of adopted aunt one of those indulgent maiden aunts one reads of in story-books the bevel adores you as he ought considering you've spoiled him abominably and that the earl looks up to you as the prop of his house now sally it is quite too bad of you oh my darling exclaimed miss moulton betwixt laughing and crying you ought to know that i have no higher wish than to end my days with you well i hope i do know it moulty dear but when you talked of a new situation you staggered me oh my love i thought that if you were to leave off trying to improve your mind i should be useless here useless why you are useful in a thousand ways you are the keystone of our domestic arch we should tumble to pieces without you and thus it was that miss moulton remained at the castle after her pupil's education was nominally finished in her conscientiousness she strove even now to cultivate lady frances's mind ungrateful though the soil might be and was perpetually scattering intellectual seed in the shape of stray scraps of information which might or might not germinate in due season miss moulton had felt deeply disappointed when morton blake announced his engagement to dulcie she had long cherished the hope of seeing her beloved pupil happily married to a man of high principles and respectable position in the county morton blake with his plebeian ancestry and moderate estate would not have been a brilliant match for the daughter of a wealthy earl but he would have been an eligible husband for a girl whose father had as much as he could do to maintain his sorely shrunken establishment and to keep out of debt carefully as frances had hidden the secrets of her wounded heart even from the loving eye of her governess miss moulton knew that the heart had been wounded that underneath the lightness and even recklessness of fanny's character there existed the capacity for deepest feeling the good woman was angry with morton for his coldness his dullness angry with him that he could have lived in closest friendship with so lovable a being and yet have withheld his love little spurts of angry feeling flashed out of her now and then in her talk about morton whereupon frances always took up the cudgels in his behalf i can't think why you're so hard upon him moulty she would say i'm sure he's always respectful and altogether nice in his manner to you 
Oh, my dear, the man is a gentleman. I am not going to deny that. But I shall always think that he made a convenience of Blatchmardon Castle, coming here two or three afternoons a week, and wasting your time idling about the gardens. Well, I should have wasted it for myself, Curly dear, if he hadn't done it for me. Hmm. And now that he is engaged to Miss Courtney, we are to consider ourselves honoured if he calls once a month. I don't think he has any idea of honouring us, Curly love. Of course, all his leisure now is devoted to Dulcie. A man should be loyal to friendship, even if he choose to fall in love. What Morton can have seen in Miss Courtney I have never been able to fathom. Oh, haven't you really, my Moulty? Why, first and foremost, he must have seen out and away the loveliest girl in this part of the world. And then Dulcie is altogether sweet and lovable. She is accomplished, too, plays exquisitely, paints admirably, has read more books than I have ever seen the outside of. Why, Moulty, she is a pearl of girls, and you know it. I think Morton is very lucky to have won her. Well, my love, if you are satisfied, I suppose I ought to be content, said Miss Moulton with a sigh. Frances laughed and ran off to the stable with her apron full of bread for the horses, and presently she stood leaning her cheek against the shoulder of her favourite brown in the dusk of a large loose box, while some slow tears crept down her cheek. Satisfied, she repeated to herself. Yes, I'm satisfied that the only man I ever cared for had never a thought for me, that after knowing every secret of my soul except one, after being for five years my chief friend and counsellor, he could coolly turn his back upon me and give his love to another girl. It is hard to bear, and you make it a little harder for me sometimes, Moulty, without knowing it. End of chapter 19